So this is part two of the series, and it starts three conversations that I had on the topic of Palestine. Uh, I've recorded a solo introduction, which I think is worth listening to if you haven't yet, where I lay out some of my philosophies and argumentation and counter-argumentation on this topic. This upcoming conversation is with Gideon Levy, who was born in Tel Aviv. He's a journalist who writes for Haaretz newspaper in Israel. And we end up talking about his path, his intellectual path, from being a young Zionist to starting to question the foundations of the Zionist project altogether, to how he currently feels about the state of Israel and its future prospects. I'll just peg a time marker here since I hope these conversations in this series holds a kind of evergreen quality to, to it, where it could be listened to and discovered months and years and decades from now. And so for anyone struggling to understand Palestine, we had this conversation, uh, Gideon and I, in the latter half of February of 2024, while the IDF was threatening to launch a full ground invasion on Rafah after having destroyed almost all of the rest of Gaza already. The death count is somewhere close to 30,000 Palestinians at the moment. Um, okay, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, I'm including references and additional suggested reading and research along with the transcripts of these conversations on my website. That's whatjthinks.com. And I do encourage you to check some of those out. For example, you'll hear Gideon mention 1948 several times in passing, which is, of course, the year of Israel's establishment. But he's using it as a kind of icon for a bigger story there, which could require some investigation. Um, okay, I'll be back at the end of the conversation with some continued thoughts and to prepare us for the second conversation in the mix of what I'm calling the Palestine Collection. So now enjoy my conversation with Gideon Levy. I'm calling it 48 Never Ended. What does Israel mean to you now? It means my homeland. It means the place that I belong to. It, it means my memories, my presence, my friends, my culture, my parents, my children. And it means also a place which makes me many times feel very ashamed. Yeah. So can you tell me a bit about that? I mean, is it... Um... You know, what do, does Israel mean to you, sort of a hope of what it could become? And in, in the ways, how are you feeling at the moment of sort of that trajectory? That are you getting, are you, are you getting closer to it, even if it feels further away? Or are you just kind of at a loss at the moment? I'm not anymore in a position that I think that it could have become something else. Hmm because the beginning was very problematic. Yeah. The establishment of Israel was very problematic. The basis is very problematic. And therefore, whatever came after it cannot be healthy because the, the, the basic ground was, was ill. Mm. You see, my father, came here on an illegal boat, traveling half a year in the Mediterranean, detained in Beirut, Lebanon, 600 people on a small boat without uh, food, without anything. He was not a Zionist. He was hardly an active Jew. 
He hardly knew anything about Judaism. He had his life in Europe, very promising life. He came here because there was no other place for him. And, uh, and I think that it was a solution for the Jewish people. But the grounds would have been totally different. And Zionism from the first day came here, not in order to live side by side with the Palestinians, but to take over. And that's, that's the scene which we are paying the price until today, because Israel never changed its policy. What happened in 48 is happening ever since then. Yeah, I've been thinking more and more about this um, framing, which has been popular, and I, I subscribe to of a settler colonial relationship, at least from the Palestinians' eyes, they didn't care who much was arriving on boats and taking their homes. It looked kind of the same to them, I suppose. But for someone like your father, um, you know, I grew up in an American Jewish household with stories of exodus from Europe, although mine went across another ocean <laughs> than your, your, and maybe a little earlier. But I heard the same kind of stories, and I've been, I've, and I have sympathy for them, right? Of course, there, there was nowhere to go, and I've been thinking more and more about this notion of uh, Israelis sort of being swindled a bit by the Zionist project, which they had not themselves forged or signed up for. I, I don't know if you could speak a bit to that. I, I am interested in this conversation with you and really digging through what you just said and the, the history of sort of starting this project down the wrong road and never finding the right place to turn and now maybe heading into a, off a cliff. Yes, it took me, by the way, many years to, to realize all this mm -hmm. because Zionism is not perceived in Israel as an ideology. Zionism in Israel is perceived like a religion. Yeah. And it's not a question of agreeing to be a Zionist or not. If you belong to Israel, you must be a Zionist. Mm. There's no other alternative. Like being a communist in Soviet Russia. You have to adopt this ideology, which is not perceived, I say again, not perceived as an ideology at all. And there is no room for anyone who, who puts some doubts or questions about Zionism. So we were brought up with this, uh, and most of us never asked any questions, and most of us will never ask any questions. Mm -hmm. And in this framework, it's very hard to, to change your skin, as we say in Hebrew, and all of a sudden to look at it from, from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. It is by far too painful for most of, most of the Israelis because what do you do with it then? Yeah, yeah. What what do you? you? What, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, it's you know you grow with a certain identity. Zionism is identity, mm -hmm. and most of the people cannot change their identity. Yeah, and it's very hard to change your identity. In this case, it's also an identity with some moral judgment. You know that to help an old lady to cross the roads is perceived here as a Zionist act. <laughs> to, 
to donate money to poor people is Zionism. I mean, anything positive is Zionism. Mm. It's not only about, you know, it's about daily life. They say that what a Zionist act it is to to help uh, Ethiopian uh, immigrants who came here and assist them. I mean, what, what does this have to do with Zionism? I mean, Zionism is the syndrome here for being a good man, a good person. So how can you not be a good person? Mm. And when did you start to, you mentioned, you know, it took you several years. What were the first cracks in your clinging to this identity? Was it certain books or things you saw? A very long process. Yeah. Which starts in me traveling to the occupied territories as a journalist in the late 80s. And I did it not with a certain purpose, quite uh, incidentally. And then gradually realizing that the occupation defines Israel. And then gradually realizing that the occupation is there to stay. It's not temporary, as we were told. It's going to stay here, and Israel never had an intention to put an end to it. And then gradually you come to the conclusion that Zionism means Jewish supremacy. Mm. And then you say, no, no. With any kind of ethnic supremacy, I cannot be part of it. Mm -hmm. This really happened only in the last years. This uh, conviction that Zionism, you know, in the 70s, the UN voted about the definition of Zionism as racism, and we were so stoked. How dare they? And today I ask, how else can you define Zionism? Yeah. How do you, so I'm an American who grew up in a, in a Jewish household, although maybe like your grandfather, not a lot of God talk, but this kind of tacit Israel worship, it was this third rail I couldn't criticize I and I couldn't sort of touch it. How frustrating has it been for someone like yourself to maybe deal with this greatest superpower on earth halfway across the world? which seems maybe in, I don't know how you would frame it to be tripping you up or, you know, I don't, I don't know how you would frame it sort of like what happened to me? How does that relate to what your, your fight has been? You have to elaborate on this because I'm not sure I, I, I got it. Who is I mean, this big power? The United States, the, ah, okay. the United States, and specifically the American Jew and their role in the participation of of this Zionist project from afar, you know. So here I will be personal. Mm. When I was a little child, and in Tel Aviv there was very little. Uh, choice of clothes. I used to get packs of used clothes from the son of the best friend of my mother, 
who happens to be, by the way, the aunt of Benjamin Netanyahu. <laughs> she used to send us, are you, I, I remember the smell of those packs going to mm -hmm. the office, to the, to the post office and getting those packs. I think I had the first blue jeans in Tel Aviv. <laughs> and the first uh, American shirts and T-shirts. And it carried the name of the cousin of Netanyahu because they used to send it to the laundry. So the name was printed on those pants. And for me, this aid from, from those rich friends in the United States or rich uncle, even though we were not family, was, was part of, of my childhood. They send us aid. Mm -hmm. Then I started to meet them because they started to come to Israel. And this was really a meeting with a different world because Tel Aviv in the 50s and the 60s was a wonderful place, but quite a poor place. And, and, and really meeting this, this resources, I remember first time going to the United States. This was in the year of 70, 70, 1970 with a group of uh, young Israelis, high school students. We were singing and dancing all kinds of Israeli songs for the Jewish communities in the East Coast. And uh, we were staying with them in their homes. And I remember also going the first time to the home of the uncle of Netanyahu at Seven Copper Beach Lane in Scarsdale, New York. <laughs> I can still smell the smell of the private swimming pool. <laughs> and all those things were for us something from a different planet. So in those years, America was a dream, an unachievable dream. And I didn't see anything political about it. It was just the big brother who helps the small poor brother to survive. That's mm. the way I perceived it then without any criticism. And when we were among the Jewish communities, dancing for them, the horror, I felt that we are brothers and sisters. Obviously, I see it in a very different way today. Yeah. I mean, tell me about today and how that relationship ha ha has formed. So I'll just tell you there, I bristle when people make this uh, defense of Israel as, you know, it's there's only a few Jews in the world and there's how many million Muslims. And it's the, I think what they're trying to do in that sort of comparison is, is, you know, show the vulnerability of Israel as this tiny nation amongst a lot of in a really bad neighborhood. And of course, there might be some truth to that. But that tiny nation in a bad neighborhood has the backing and seemingly, maybe it's ending, but unconditional blank check support of the most powerful military and country on earth. And so talk about now how you maybe see that dynamic with uh, America and maybe American Jewry as well. I think America corrupted Israel. Hmm. I think this uh, so-called friendship is not a real friendship. Mm. 
it's more of a relationship between a drug addict and the dealer. Mm. America destroyed Israel in many ways because it taught Israel that Israel can do whatever it wants. There are no yeah. limits. We have the big brother to guard us automatically and blindly, by the way, mm -hmm. in an unconditioned way. Israel is getting more money from the United States than any other state in the world. And you ask yourself, is really Israel the most needed place, the poorest place, the place who needs so much money? And you can't avoid it that part of it is because of the Jewish community, not all of it. Mm -hmm. But the Jewish community is part of it. The Jewish community, the older generation, because now you know better than me, there is a huge shift which mm -hmm. leaves me with a lot of hope. But the old generation totally identified himself with anything Israel is doing. Again, blindly and automatically, not thinking about the consequences. Mm. And the consequences we see now. Because rightly so, many progressive Americans are asking a few questions. Yeah. First of all, that is that's the best way to spend the taxpayers' money of the United States on this country who never listen to our advices, who ignore our advices, who humiliates our presidents one after the other, is this really the interest of the United States? And then when we talk about the Jewish community, this total identification with Israel and this blind automatic support means that when Israel is committing a mass murder or mass killing in Gaza, the American jury is part of it. Mm -hmm. You and can't it... run away from your responsibility to this. Yeah. And when there is anti-Semitism because of it, don't be surprised because yeah. you put yourself in this position. You say that everything that Israel is doing is holy. Yeah. It, that will be hard. Don't... Yeah. That will be hard for so... some of them to hear. I'm thinking of my mom in my my head right now who's who's worried about those expressions and has the the boogeyman of the Holocaust returning at any time. But I thought something you said there was so interesting about America corrupting Israel in that way because there's this quote speaking of the older generation from Joe Biden going around when he, from the nineties, I think, or maybe the eighties when he was declaring, you've probably seen it, his strong support of Israel. And he said something like, if Israel didn't exist, we would have to invent it to serve our interest in the region. He's saying exactly what you just said there. It wasn't, it wasn't, I don't know why people haven't picked up on this more. He's not saying because, you know, we support democracy everywhere or because these are our brothers or we're, you know, we have some kinship of the values. No, he's saying to put our our interest in the region. So I, I don't know. I mean, playing Israel again, I and, and this is an interesting tactic I'm trying to take. I'm quite upset, as I think you are, about Israel and its current behavior. But how about a bridge to this one? Because you've hinted at it a little. I'm I'm 
carefully trying to think about Israelis, modern day Israelis now, a bit of victims of their own, uh, we already talked about sort of the Zionist project, but maybe of their own, you know, being hooked on American money or their own hubris or their own specialness in some ways. Um, what do Israelis know about their own history in your estimation? First of all, I must say that American Jewry realized now, in a very late stage, that the Israelis don't appreciate them at all. <laughs> yeah. They look at them upside down. Mm -hmm. They think they are stupid and naive, and they want only their money. I'm generalizing and oversimplifying it. But you can see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. This attitude in which you are our ITM, you are our bank account, but nothing more than this. And we don't want to hear your views. We are not interested in it. Now, getting back to your question, I think that uh, Israelis know nothing. I mean, mm. the level of ignorance mainly among the young generation, will shock you. Mm. I mean, it's not that they they know nothing about nothing. I'm shocked by the level of, of ignorance in high, among high school students. Obviously, there's always a small group who knows a lot, but most of Israelis know so little. Now, when I was a child, I knew many things. I didn't know anything about the history of the state. Yeah. And what I knew was totally biased. Mm. Today, they know nothing about anything and they also have no interest. Can you give me a specific example? I don't want to cut you off, but I think like, because this is so interesting. And in the previous episode, I'm going through a lot of the history. So as a total example, when did you learn and how did you learn about the existence of the Irgun? or the Stern Gang, or something like that? No, the Yagun I knew, and the Stern Gang I knew, mm. but I never heard the word Nakba. Mm. I was maybe 20 or 25 when I first heard the word Nakba. And where did you we hear it? All, we saw all those ruins along the roads, mm. Palestinian houses. We never asked, where are the owners of those houses? What happened to them? Why aren't they at their homes? Where are they? In 67, I was 14. I went with my parents to the first tour to the West Bank. I remember so many exciting scenes. I don't remember seeing one Palestinian. Mm. I mean, we, we, we knew about us mm. more. We knew nothing about what happened to the people who lived here. We really believe that the people without the land came to an end without the people. Mm. We really believe that we were the weak one, the David, and they were the Goliath. Yeah. We really believe that they were all, they all ran away and we didn't expel anyone. We never asked, for example, why didn't we let them come back? Let's say they all ran away in 48. Why can't someone get back to his property? Even if you ran away. Yeah. In 91, in the in the Gulf War, 
I took my family and went to Elat because I had a baby of three months then, and I couldn't stay with this fear of chemical weapons falling on Tel Aviv. I lost my property. I couldn't get back to my home. Sure, I could. Why couldn't the Palestinian mm-hmm. get back to the properties even if they ran away? So all those questions were not in our vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And above all, we never met a Palestinian. We never met an Arab. You live in Tel Aviv in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. You don't meet any Arab. I remember when I was 17, I met once a Druze. This was the maximum I got to. We were totally separated. So it's a mixture of ignorance and biased facts and a lot of separation. We didn't mix at all. And the outcome was that we really believed that we are the only one around and we are the victims and Mm -hmm. we are the chosen people and we have the right to do whatever we want after the Holocaust and, and, and nothing else but, but, but this, that's a typical systematic brain or system. And, and today the youth in Israel, you're saying they, they might learn something like the Irgun and the Stern gang or something like that, no. maybe as freedom fighters. Now, now they know even not about that. Nothing. Hmm. If they would know who was David Ben-Gurion, it will be a great achievement. Hmm. Uh, They will know the name because there are so many streets on his name, but they will not be sure, was he the president, was he a prime minister, what was he? Mm -hmm. Moshe Dayan, they never heard about. Mm -hmm. Igal alone, no way. Irgun, no idea. Hmm. Now they know nothing about nothing, and they are much more nationalistic than we were. So when they're dropping bombs and fighting and massacring or whatever we're going to frame it as in in Gaza at the moment, what's running through their heads is just, I don't know. I mean, how would you characterize it? How are they able to be doing what they're doing? It's interesting. I'm trying to take sort of a sympathetic, I'm calling them ignorant in the most charitable sense of the word, right? They, in their worldview, this is some evil, made up, fake refugee problem, uh, maybe a reincarnation of the Nazis. It's just old anti Semitism and something like that. I mean, is that the level that we're at at the moment? You said it all. Mm-hmm. First of all, we don't have to guess because we have we have very concrete uh, expressions mm-hmm. in this war, for example. Unlikely other wars in Gaza, there are no soldiers refusing to serve. Mm-hmm. For sure, not publicly. I understand there were some who did it silently, mm-hmm. but this is meaningless. In former wars, we had petitions of pilots and petitions of soldiers who said, we don't want to serve them. Mm. This time, nobody even dares to think about it. Secondly, you see the enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. You see the footage, you see the the videos they are shooting. They are so proud about what they are doing. And that's an outcome of decades of dehumanizing the Palestinians. You say that they see the Nazis. I think it's even worse than this. They don't see them as human beings at all. Mm. And therefore, everything is 
allowed, nothing is forbidden. And you really see, obviously, the older they are, the more reluctant they are. But most of the soldiers are 18, 19 year old guys, 20. Mm -hmm. They are really doing it with a lot of enthusiasm, like they do it for many years now in the West Bank. Yeah. On a, on a smaller scale. How, 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 yes, yeah. yes, How do you. Um square people who so in my emails to you you know i made a film with sam harris i've been obviously very um <laughs> dismayed at his current sort of expressions on the topic but i don't think they're rare um and so even people in my family who were always supportive of israel always would make sure they would point to the settlements and say oh but i don't agree with the settlements i wish you know i wish those would stop this is probably something you've heard a lot of like you know israel has a right to exist and yeah i think the problems exaggerated but those settlements you know i, I do disagree with them how do you respond to this kind of i don't know wanting to somehow separate that problem as if it is not linked to the entire situation or, or i don't want to put words in your mouth i'm frustrated with it clearly how, how do you respond to it Christopher, you are rightly uh, so uh, frustrated about it. I can compare it to another phenomenon which is more updated. It's all about Netanyahu. Right, right. right. Against Netanyahu. Yeah. We only, if we get rid of Netanyahu, oh. everything will be. And that's in a smaller scale because the settlement is a bigger problem than Netanyahu because Netanyahu will, in a certain stage, uh, disappear. Mm -hmm. The settlements will not. But it's in both cases the same uh, focusing on a relatively minor phenomena that we can somehow handle while we justify the entire project. But the entire project is the problem, not right. the, the settlements. And that's, again, a very late uh, realization of mine. Five years ago, I'm not sure I would have told you. Today, I know the problem is 48, not 67. We have to face it. And and I, for many years, I thought that if we will just pull out from the occupied territories, everything will be great. No, not anymore. Maybe it was possible before. Mm -hmm. Not anymore. Now it's all about 48. Yeah. And those who speak about, look, I, I'll give you a personal example again. I don't buy any products from the from the occupied territories, from the settlements. Mm -hmm. Very good. I feel very good about myself. But you understand, I cannot live here and not buy Israeli products. Everything has borders. Really? But that's I know it's it's very hypocritical. And if people from abroad ask me, I always tell them, don't make the, the separation between because we are all settlers. First of all, we all support the settlement project. But you know, also Tel Aviv is a settlement. And I don't say by this that we have to now dismantle Israel and to send 10 million people or 7 million people, 7 million Jews back to Europe. This is impossible. But we have to realize that the problem is 48 because 48 never stopped. Mm -hmm. And it seems that, I mean, to back it up even earlier than 48, I mean, the train seemingly had left the station on Zionism in Palestine proper 
let's not maybe not 1897 certainly by 1917 in the Balfour Declaration um you had people like Hannah Arendt and Albert Einstein who were facing uh, a real threat in in Europe and interested going to Zionist project uh conferences and whatnot and very early on in the 30s stepping away slowly being like this is already taken over by what they in their words were calling Nazi and fascist ideas and so again i mean i think that train left the station pretty late i do have sympathy a lot of people always point to the jews who were expelled from arab nations after 48 as being caught up in this thing and yes all caught up in a in a in a train that left the station before 1948 but i do get your point about 1948 um it, you know and those settlements where would you cuz you said something else interesting there and i totally agree with your analysis there where did you, or would you now, looking back on it, think that the window to hinting at, let's call it a two-state solution with West Bank and Gaza or something, when did that window close for you as being a, a feasible, facts-on-the-ground possibility? First of all, now I realize that this window was never open. Yes, right. But interestingly... It happened after two visits to South Africa. Hmm. I was twice there, once at Mandela's funeral, and before this as a guest of the South African Foreign Ministry. And something in those visits really taught me that we have to go for a one-state solution, like South Africa went for a one-state solution. And with all the problems in South Africa, and there are many, South Africa basically today is much more a just place to live in than 25 years ago. And also that the unthinkable can happen because I remember talking about the bloodbath that all the whites will be slaughtered Mm-hmm. And there's no chance for, 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 for a democracy in South Africa. And, you know, very few whites were slaughtered, if at all. So somehow it was there when I realized that we have to stop losing ourselves and cheating ourselves. Because I always felt that the two-state solution, there is something fake in it. Yeah. How will we solve the problem of the refugees in a two-state solution? How will we solve the problem that this Palestinian state will be a Bentustam? Because Israel wants it to be demilitarized. Why should it be demilitarized? Israel is demilitarized? Why should the Palestinian state be demilitarized? Who is going to protect them? They They have to count on the goodwill of the Israeli army? They saw the goodwill of the Israeli army. So all kind of questions, and then all of a sudden I realized it's all about the one state, which exists for 55 years now, and we just have to change its regime. It sounds very simple, but it's a very, very long way to go. Yeah, I think it's going to be a bumpy ride to get to it. What do you, So what do you say about, and this is a tough one, because again, I, I don't know if you know the kind of people I've worked with, but they focus a lot on religious violence in particular. And the comparisons to South Africa and always this overblown fear. I mean, it was the same argument that slave owners made being like, we can't release the slaves because they'll kill us because I, <laughs> I know how hard I've been beating them. 
and it's, and it's almost always an overblown fear, but there's people in my intellectual orbit who always point towards Islam as being a particularly potent form of uh, religious violence that might be a different variable in this in this um, equation. Uh, I don't know how you respond to that. It also, of course, ignores that there has been Jewish violence, but let's I, I want to hear your response to that fear. And the analysis that something like jihad, or even if you know Iran is supporting of it, they have their own networks that are are you know a different animal than something like Black South Africans who've been discriminated against. First of all, even if it's true, it wasn't true twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. The Palestinians were the most secular Arab peoples, mm-hmm. very secular. There were no Islamists. So, first of all, if you would have solved it 20 or 30 years ago, mm-hmm. for sure this danger wouldn't appear at all. And still, I believe that the Palestinians are still more secular than all the other Arab countries. Yes, they go to mosques, but I don't see them as jihadists. But it is changing. I cannot mm-hmm. ignore it. It is changing. And you know, for Israel, it was enough the attack on the 7th of October to prove it. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, you can ask yourself, one attack, as barbaric as it was, created so much hatred. How much hatred should create 50 years or 100 years of brutality? But in any case, it is a danger. I don't want to say there is no danger. Uh, you see, my partner, she's Swedish, and they are facing it in Sweden now. Sweden was one of the most generous mm-hmm. countries to absorb uh, refugees, mainly Muslim refugees. And 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 Sweden is changing now and suffering and paying a hell of a price. Sweden is now facing realities that it never faced in its history. Mm-hmm. Gangs of, of, of violence, of people using missiles in the streets, I mean, in, in certain neighborhoods, obviously. Uh, it is a problem. I don't want to say that it's not. As, as the Israeli right-wingers always say, not all the Muslims are terrorists, but all the terrorists are Muslims. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the big killings is still being done by the white mm-hmm. Christian men or the Jewish men. If you look historically or if you look even currently, yeah, big violence is still not. But I, I can't ignore the fact that when you open our TV and you hear about violence in the world, most of it is, is Muslim. Yeah, I, I think there's historical reasons for that, which, which I... I... I'm speaking about in the previous episode, but um, yeah, I, I mean, I also think, you know, moving to a one state will take some courage and some things might blow up and it, and it, and it shouldn't derail the entire project. And I know that's such a, that's such a crass thing to say, but I think that's the path. And like you said, it didn't have to be this way. This almost seems like, I'm, I'm like you, I'm 41. I've been thinking about this a lot since I was 13 years old and about to get my bar mitzvah. 
it seemed for I've been warning about this day of like you're going to reach this point of no return where you're choosing to go the hard path. You're choosing to go down the painful path with a lot of death and a lot of problems. And it seems we've chosen that path and Israel chose that path. Um, and it's just going to take some some courage. It didn't have to be this way 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It's not much comfort to people who are like, well, what do we do now? Um, how much of that do you think was, this is maybe an interesting question, intentionally engineered? You know, a lot is made about Israel supporting and funding Hamas to delegitimize the Palestinian state, embarrass Arafat, all that kind of stuff. I mean, how serious do you think that charge is and holds up to scrutiny? Uh, my tendency is usually to think that Israel and Israelis are less sophisticated than <laughs> we tend to think. And many things happened without being planned. <laughs> because I don't see a grand plan in Israel at all, even yeah. today. We yeah. hardly know how to, to conclude this war in Gaza. No plan, nothing. Nobody knows how to finish it. What will be the day after? So I I always, but I know that some others say that I'm naive. Mm. It was all planned. You know, again, we have to go back to the Nakba. Was the Nakba a plan? So there are some evidences that yes. There are some documents, some some. Um, protocols, some some hearings that you hear that people spoke about it, but I'm not sure there was a very systematic plan. Mm -hmm. But it happened, and same for now. I I still refuse to believe that everything was planned here by Israel. I think it was more improvised, mm -hmm. like Israel usually does. And, and it leads that, but it's very clear that the spirit of all of it was the same. That the, I mean, too many Israelis believe until this very day, and for sure in the first days of Zionism, that the only real solution is ethnic cleansing. Mm -hmm. There is no other real solution. All the other solutions are not solutions. A temporary solution, but not final one. The real solution is to make this land your Jewish. And you can't deny it. that's a solution. Mm -hmm. You can be totally against it. Obviously, you can think it's a Nazi way of thinking, but it's a solution. And I think that this solution is the back is in the back of the mind mm -hmm. of generations of Israelis and Zionists. Yeah. Even though they knew that it's not possible, or at least not possible for the time being. But they were all waiting, and still they are. For the moment, it will become possible. Mm. And October 7th is an opportunity, certainly, to justify Absolutely. it. Yeah, Absolutely. How would you frame, uh, I want to talk about um, censorship in Israel, about you know, you've been able to write for for quite a while. How we hear about military censors in Israel, and and uh, how pervasive is sort of censorship and and freedom of press to write about these things? It's much worse than you think because it's not about censorship. 
the military censorship is very limited. Mm -hmm. It's about self-censorship, which is much worse. Right. Really nothing to do with censorship. The government, the army, the secret services, they can put very, very little pressure or prevent very, very few things to be published. The problem is that most of the media, if not all of it, and in this war it is really almost all of it, chooses to censor itself, not because of ideological reasons, only because of commercial reasons. Mm. There is this wall-to-wall agreement. Everyone wants certain things not to be published. The readers don't want to know, and the, the, the reporters don't want to report, and the publishers don't want it to be reported, and the government and the army for true don't want it to be reported and informed. And everyone is very happy. You see the coverage now, I don't know how much you are aware to the most shameful coverage of Gaza in Israeli media right now. Yeah. You know that for days, for weeks, for months, you don't see Gaza at all, only through the eyes of the soldiers. No suffering Gaza, no starvation, no replaced people, nothing. That's not because the government told the media not to, to show it. They can show it as much as they want. Hmm. It is because they don't want to bother our readers and our viewers. I participated in a panel on Israeli TV for many years now in a very liberal program. And they stopped my participation ever since the war started. Hmm. Nobody told them to do so. They just know that my presence there might create problems with with the viewers, not with the government. And this Mm. is much worse in my view. Yeah. I mean, what would happen if somebody... In America, there's some coverage. I I live in Spain at the moment now, so I get what I get here. But the LA Times just a couple of days ago put out a, a story about children showing up in a hospital in Gaza with sniper bullets in their head in secession a pretty awful story obviously but a you know piece of really telling evidence of some pretty untoward behavior and targeted intentional killing of children it gets published in the LA Times which might be something surprising as it were maybe some things are changing in America as you said because the commercial interests in America people have to sell papers and younger people are uh not on board with the old message at least of let's not question Israel um, but what would happen if that gets published in the Jerusalem Post, say? It would be a huge wave of canceling subscriptions, mm-hmm. protests of readership. Even for less than this, Haaretz is paying a price. Yeah. And even Haaretz in this war is more cautious than in former wars, even though it's still the best of the best, if you compare mm. it to all the others. But uh, it, it can it can bring so much pro- protest and anger that it will be a price that uh, private media will not be able to, to stand it. Mm. Look, I published in 2014, I published a, an article about the Israeli pilots, which became here a mythology. And my newspaper lost, I mean, until today, I don't know how much money, but it was in millions of shekels. Mm. 
in terms of cancellation of uh, because of one article cancellation of of subscriptions and cancellation of advertisements. Not every publisher is ready to pay this price. Mm -hmm. Give me your, I won't keep you too much longer. I know you're generous with your precious time, but can you give me your predictions, how you see this? Give me like the one year and then the 10 year kind of way this is playing out. Because I'm I'm kind of at a loss, but believe it or not, I'm also optimistic in the ten year vision. I think the walls will fall one day, and we'll have that one, we'll have that one state. Um, but it's going to be a really bumpy ride to get there. But how are you projecting this to go? I really don't know, and not only I don't know, I cannot portray one optimistic scenario. Mm. I don't know from where to take it. Who will make it happening? Hmm. The world who is very indifferent and many times blind and has little interest, and I'm afraid the interest will just decrease. Hmm. The Israelis will wake up one morning and say, no, no, this is not nice what we are doing. Let's change. No way. The Palestinians who are getting weaker and weaker and weaker and more divided and lacking leadership and lacking spirit of struggle and they are really lost and above all lonely. Yeah. Nobody really supports them except of flip service and, and demonstrations, but that's not enough by facts. So who is going to gain to be the game changer? I don't see it happening. But on the other hand, if we would have met in the late 80s, and I would have told you that within months, <laughs> you were not alive there, but within months, the Berlin Wall. Apartheid and Soviet Russia all going to fall without even no bloodshed, you would have thought that I'm out of my mind. So we have to, to really leave some room for the unsinkable. But in sinkable terms, I cannot see any 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 hope. Do you think the well, I was alive, I was born in 82, but I don't remember much of it. But the uh but do you think the uh things are changing in America for sure? which is something we mentioned early in this conversation about the analogy to, you know, a, a drug dealer. Maybe that's where I'm drawing some of my optimism that this can't, I don't know how that changes the game. If the blank check stops, I think unfortunate Trump or Biden won't change anything. Trump might make a bigger blank check as it were. Uh, but this, you know, I'm on board with the projection that this is likely the last Democratic candidate of ever to be unconditionally supportive of Israel. And I think that's an interesting change. I don't know what ha Israel has never existed as a place without this security blanket, as it were. M maybe that's where I'm drawing some optimism that it, it um, out of necessity of survival has to change a bit. You know, I don't know if there's a moral awakening there, but uh, maybe that's where I'm drawing some of this uh, necessity. The Palestinian people may be weaker, but I think they have a resolve that, you know, why give up now? <laughs> They've stuck it out so long. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know how you think if you play out that scenario, let's say Trump wins and for four years, it's probably pretty awful with a bigger blank check and Saudi Arabia will likely normalize relations because it's all about money. Um but then, but then things really shift in American 
stance or American leadership in the world generally, does that does that get us closer to optimism? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, maybe I'm fishing here. No, 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 no. That's the only source of hope. Yeah. The only source of hope is with the shift in America. Mm-hmm. Both, by the way, in the Jewish community and the, in the general community. It, it includes also the, the Jewish community. Yeah. That's the only source of hope. But for me, it is too slow. Yeah. Because I had my expectation already when Barack Obama was elected. And I yeah. thought, here it comes. Yeah. Really had great hopes. Here it comes. His heart was in the right place. He's going to do it. And and 20 years later, and we are in the same place, or even in a worse place. So I hope this will happen, sure. But it will not be in my lifetime anymore. Yeah. Because it will take, look, also America, we always say that it changes its, its directions always very, very slow. Yeah takes years, if not decades, to change this huge, huge career to change its direction. But that's the main source of my hope, because if if the United States will change, Europe will be the first one to follow. They just wait for it. I don't know why they're living in such fear from the, from the United States, and they are following whatever the United States is doing blindly. But once America will change, the EU will change immediately. They are just looking for the opportunity mm. because they really had enough from Israel. But they don't dare to, yeah. to do something against the American policy. I'll give you one, one last one that maybe is food for thought of, if I gave you a time machine and you could go back and, and change something in this entire trajectory, you could go back to 1897 and tell them, hey, Maybe you the Uganda plan is the one to go for here, or what what would you what would you have done to prevent the situation that we're in? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to draw some sort of hope out of the situation we're in, but it's t- difficult. So what what would you have changed about this entire endeavor? I didn't think about it, but uh... Maybe I would have prevented Hitler. Hmm. And then I wouldn't be here. And yeah. most of the Israelis wouldn't have been here. If it's not Hitler, there's no state of Israel. Hmm. And if it's not a state of uh, the state of Israel, there is maybe a problem in Europe with the Jews, but in much smaller scale. And maybe we would have overcome this problem. I would have been now a German-speaking uh, European, was very into knowledge about my Jewish origins because I'm secular and my parents were secular. And I think I, I would have had a, quite a nice life. Second option is to replace Ben-Gurion. Yeah. And to start the whole thing in a different way because I think it could have started differently. Yeah, can you finish on that note? Because I, it is, I, I think history is so crucial to this. 48, tell me about Ben-Gurion and who, sh- wish, who we could have had. Look, in the 20s already, because we, 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 spoke, we spoke before, when did it start? In the 20s, yeah. they are speaking about conquering the labor, the labor market. 
in other way, in other words, pushing the Palestinians from their jobs. Yeah. They spoke about it openly. It was almost a value. Kibush Havoda. The conquering of labor. Hebrew labor, Avodai Vrit. This was the beginning, much before the territory. They started to push the Palestinians from their jobs and replace them. This could start in a different way. Because if you speak to the old Palestinians and old Jews from the 20s, 30s, 40s, there were quite good relations here. It could continue if we will, if the whole attitude of Zionism wouldn't have been such a colonialist attitude in which we know better, everything belongs to us, we have the right about this land, and only we have the right about this land, and there is no room for any compromise. So I think if the whole project would have started in a different way, we could have lived today in a quite prosperous uh, uh, nation state. Jews and Arabs together, what's wrong? What's wrong? <laughs> today to start it is much, much more complicated. So now we're at a place where all of that we wish would have happened didn't happen. And it seems that we're running into... The uh, this is a, a bad American phrase, but the shit or get off the pot phrase, where it's either ethnic cleansing or one state actually actually do this the way it should be, even though it's way more painful than it ever needed to be, um, or maybe this fantasy of a two state. But it, it seems that we're at the end. We're at the end of the line of it cannot continue to be going the way it was going. Or do you think we're going to go right back to October 6th? I, I don't I don't see it happening. I think this is the moment we have to choose as as a as a people. And obviously my vote is for one state. As painful as it's going to be, we have to we have to be hopeful. And like you said, I take a lot of solace in how fast history can turn. I always point to when people are feeling pessimistic about this kind of stuff, I always point to the idea if you know if I had told you in the year 1968, that Vietnam would be the hottest tourist destination for Americans in just 30, you know, you would have laughed me out of the room, but it's a beautiful place and Americans are drinking, you know, Mai Tais on the beach now. Things can change and things can change really quickly. So, uh, you know, let's just hope for some of that optimism that we, we don't give in to our deepest fear because just this last thing i think the worst possible psychological story that we could tell is the victims people like your father or my relatives but particularly yours in israel the victims of the the, the black death and the holocaust and the extermination effort of jews in europe would within just one or two generations be on the other side of an overt ethnic cleansing campaign by whatever name you want to sanitize it as um that's a pretty shitty story if that's what it turns out to be and i think if anything that we can do as thinkers and philosophers and humans with courage is to try to steer the future towards better stories about the kind of people we are um but to do that we have to be honest as you've done so beautifully in your work with what we're capable of doing and even jews even westerners even whites are capable of these things. And I think that's something we're going to have to 
reckon with about ourselves and about history, but maybe I'm more optimistic than you. I'm a bit younger than you, so maybe I'll live to see it. Uh, but I, I hope I do. And I obviously hope you do too, because your work is um, courageous and important and keep the fire alive uh, as much as you can. I um, hugely appreciate your time. Like I said, you're probably one of the most sought after people on earth at the moment, but try to find some more reservoirs of energy and, and keep writing and keep witnessing and, and keep up the good work. So thank you, Gideon. Thank you so much for having me. And for me, it was really a very unique experience to talk with you. I was looking for points in which we disagree and I couldn't find them. Mm. That's very rare in those days that I talk to people that I can feel myself totally identifying with what they say, especially not in Israel. I'm a little less, less optimistic than you, but why to spoil the party <laughs> when you conclude it in such a nice and, and really hopeful way. Okay. Let's hope you are right. Okay. Thank you. Hey, All the best. All Thank right. All the best. Thank you so, so, so much. Thank you. Okay. So that conversation is meant to uh, take a bit of the pulse of Israel and continue to push the ways in which history, as much as some people may want to uh, really can't uh, be ignored or discounted in this conversation. Um, but my next conversation in the series is going to get into the question that many of us have been asking quietly, but have been probably afraid to voice out loud. It's all about that fine line between resistance and terrorism. And it takes us out of the Israel-Palestine issue a bit and broadens the lens. It's with the absolutely brilliant writer and professor Richard English and all about his book, which he entitled, Does Terrorism Work? So that's part three of the Palestine collection, and it comes out tomorrow.